Hey, I'm Francesca Maxime, and this is Wise Girl, and thanks so much for joining us today. Today, we are talking with Monique Lang. She is a therapist now in Syracuse and uh, formerly in New York, still in New York City from time to time. She is the author of Healing from Post-Traumatic Stress and also the author of Ceremonies for Healing and Meditation for Healing. Hi, Monique. Just Hi. Hi. <laughs> um, today, we're going to talk a little yes. bit about... Yeah, we're going to talk a little bit about um, different kinds of things that have come up, I think, a lot recently, um, which can span the range from trauma to Me Too to ceremonies and the role of um, different kinds of ceremonies and how they can help for healing and going from uh, surviving to thriving. So thank you so much, Monique, for joining us. My pleasure. It's great to have you here. Um, since 1980, you have been working in uh, this field um, as a therapist and, and also as someone who's really specialized uh, as well in trauma. But you've talked a lot about the ways in which we can use what some might say are untraditional approaches as ways of healing. Can you, in your experience, talk about why you started to employ, you know, more of that kind of an exploration and technique? And what does it even mean to have a ceremony as a part of, of healing for oneself? So, uh, first of all, thank you for having me. It's a delight. It's delighted. And when you ask me why I started using different ways of working rather than the psychoanalysis that I was trained in is I love to quote my teacher, my shamanic teacher, Ipupiara, who used to say we do it because it works. Mm -hmm. And what I've noticed over the years is that just talk therapy allows people to understand what's going on, but it doesn't make changes in the profound ways that doing non-traditional models, and this is becoming more and more recognized. Uh, Dan Siegel, um, I forget his first name, Porges, are now showing, and all the meditation people are showing how our brain gets impacted and affected and changed through things like meditation. Now, studies have not been made yet done with uh, shamanic practices, but what shamanic practices do is they move us away from our cognitive function, our narratives, into groups, into our limbic systems, and memory banks and our physiology where a lot of our memories are stored. And so by using these other models, we not only understand what happened, but it changes the way our brain remembers, for lack of a better word, and metabolizes the material. Mm -hmm. 100%, I understand. Um there's so much 
more research out there now that wasn't available that validates some of these ancient wisdom practices that intuitively seem to make sense, but folks who really kind of wanted a, a scientific approach, you know, weren't sold on. But then, like you say, when you do it and you see that it works and there's actually changes in people and how they can live their lives in a more relaxed or fruitful way, then the proof is kind of in the pudding. So for somebody who doesn't know what a shamanic practice might be, I know you teach uh, some of this stuff at Kripalu and Omega and you do trips down to South America. Talk to us a little bit about what a shamanic practice possibly would even look like and do you do it with a trained therapist or by yourself or how would you do it? That is a big question. <laughs> Shamanism is a worldview. Just like therapy is a worldview, you know, it's so it's a way that shamans experience the universe. And they believe that everything has energy. And we're now scientifically finding out that trees talk to each other and rocks emit energy, right? That the shaman is trained to help the person they're working with use the energies of the universe, of Mother Earth and Grandfather Sun, Grandmother Moon, and the plants, particularly the plants, to heal what has been hurt. And part of what happens is, particularly trauma, is held in our bodies. And again, I never remember people's names, but studies have shown that we have the same neural pathways in our bellies as we do in our brains. And so people always, and it's very common, people say, oh, I have a gut feeling about whatever, right? Or I have this felt sense about whatever. This is our body giving us information. In traditional psychotherapy, we don't pay any attention to that. It's all using our cognitive prefrontal cortex narrative by Using meditation practices and shamanic practices, we move into the body. So we're working holistically. That makes sense? Absolutely. Um, so that kind of holistic looking inward, I think a lot of people um, feel disassociated. Uh, they don't even know that there's a life that exists from here down that um, everybody's sort of up in their head. And, you know, I heard somebody say once, you know, uh, you know you're wearing your, your shoulders as your earrings. We're all so tense and, you know, walking around and running around and, and we don't even realize how contracted we are, which is sort of going back to, you mentioned Stephen Porges earlier and Dan Siegel, that fight, flight, or freeze state that's sort of at our, our lower brainstem that's very much rooted in survival, but now we're afraid of the paper tiger that we feel is lurking around the corner when it's no longer there so unlocking that limbically is what you're talking about yeah. um, but what is the um, somatic uh, uh, way in which shamanism does this you mentioned energy the energy of the rocks and the plants and whatnot if you were working with someone who is trained in this who's a shaman what might they do what could somebody possibly expect if they were looking toward um, toward that <laughs> 
Is it something you can even talk about? Well, so that's something I can talk about it. They use plants and um, a lot of alcohol. And so uh, what they do is what is called Olympia, which is basically a cleaning. Yeah, I was going to say to clean. Yeah. And what, so different traditions do it differently. The way I was trained is you use eggs and you rub the egg all over the person's body with carnations and what the Agua de Florida, which is um, alcohol that's been infused with plants. And that, by doing that, you remove the physiological, energetic, negative energy from the person's body. Mm-hmm. So it's literally like taking a bath, you know. Yeah. And, um, what it, and so that's totally takes you out of the narrative and works solely on your uh, energetic, energetic body. Mm-hmm. They also will work in connecting you with guides and ancestors and with the power animals. So they have this, in, in the Judeo-Christian world, we have angels, basically, angels and the demons, right? But they have a worldview that includes uh, power animals. So you can have the energy of an animal come and help you. You have guides. You have your ans- the spirit of your ancestors, the spirit of the trees and the rocks, who are all there to lend their energy for your healing. And shamans know how to use those energies for healing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, I can definitely appreciate what you're saying now more than I could have five years ago or 10 years ago, having actually seen the benefits, not of shamanistic practice, because I've never done precisely what you've just described, um, but I have certainly done um, somatic therapy healing and also training as a somatic uh, experiencing uh you know, practitioner, but also the mindfulness and the meditation and just getting more into the body with very simple mindfulness practices like uh, a body scan and, um, you know, noticing sensations and what is arising and then sort of uh, tuning into that inner wisdom that um, oftentimes gets triggered and, you know, we overreact and then we sometimes uh, have to tune back in and say, wow, that's an old uh, reaction as opposed to what's happening in the present moment and in the now. So working more psychotherapeutically rather than shamanically from the somatic um, viewpoint, when a sensation arises and you notice that you're wearing your shoulders as earrings, right? You want to ask the shoulders what they're trying to tell you. Mm. What memory is coming up? So then you're dialoguing with those sensations, which hold a lot of information, as you said. And then the next step is, oh, I'm wearing my shoulders up to my ears because I'm afraid, let's say. Well, are you afraid for what's happening in the moment? Or is that fear from past experiences that is now, as you said, being triggered. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
And I think there's probably a lot of people that are like, oh my God, she's talking about alcohol and carnations and what the hell, I'm never going to do that. And, you know, this is ridiculous. And, you know, uh, and then there are other people who are like, I don't care. Nothing has worked. I'm miserable and suffering. Lay it on me, you know? Um, so at what point do you think people are ready for this kind of approach? I think there's two, in my, my experience, there's two types of people who are ready for this kind of very alternative approach. And by the way, you don't drink the alcohol. Uh, yeah, no, it's a part of the bath, right? It's a part of the bath. Um, there's a people who are on a spiritual path, like yourself, and who are doing meditation and looking for new ways of being in the world, new ways of accessing their authentic selves, which is, I believe, one of the biggest issues that I'm finding. We're at a time of major transformation and many, many people are looking for new ways of being in the world and new ways and ways of connecting with their own authentic self. Like what is a lot of people, I find a lot of people asking, what is my purpose on this planet? As opposed to how am I going to make money? Now, it's in, I, I really don't want to say that it's not important to find ways to support ourselves and have a life that is comfortable. What I'm finding is more and more people saying, well, that's important, but how do I manifest the truth of who I am? How do I serve this planet and humanity? So that's the big question. Now, one of the things that meditation and shamanic journeys do, and shamanic journey is a type of meditation, they allow you to go beyond your own way of thinking. So it takes you out of your habitual thinking into an expanded um, awareness. That, so that's one type of people. And the other type of person that comes to me is a person, like you said, who's tried everything. And they go, whatever. I've tried everything. It hasn't worked. Might as well try this. Yeah. And I think that, you know, that's why I think they said sometimes, you know, when the vase cracks, that's when the light comes in, right? So um, sometimes that's the dark night of the soul is the, the great awakening. Um, you, you mentioned the, um, uh, you know, with the, with the shamanic practices and, and sort of the mind that created the problem can't fix the problem. So getting out of our discursive thinking, our everyday default mode network, getting uh, through to a different part of ourselves that's existing in our body where there's wisdom uh, that we're not familiar with because we haven't really been exercising as much of that integration with the right brain. We've been working with the left brain kind of, like you said, you know, sort of on the straight and narrow path of, of success and achievement or whatever we have to do, but that that core need for authenticity, for purpose, to connection to our own truth is really what we're most longing for. 
and finding where that fits on the planet. And so I'm wondering, have you seen that, is there a difference in generations in terms of people's ability to do this? Is it a question of um, people's willingness, like you said, to just give it a try? Is this something that needs to be practiced again and again and again, or is it just sort of one euphoric experience? How would, or is it any of, and all of the above? So I wish it was one euphoric experience. <laughs> <laughs> then we'd all sign up, right? Yeah. Uh, it's like everything else. It, we all have these ha-ha moments that happen in prayer, that happen in a walk in the woods, that happen in meditation, that happen through a, me- a, a shamanic healing or a shamanic journey. But then you have to do the work. What I feel very grateful for is that I'm trained as a psychotherapist and as a shamanic practitioner. So when people have that kind of awakening or opening, we can process it cognitively. We can process it through a narrative. I mean, the shamans do not process anything. You know, they go, okay, you're done. They do their thing, okay, you're done, bye. Uh-huh. Uh, but they usually do not talk about the impact and how that ripples through your whole system. Mm-hmm. So it's really a combination of things. You know, I mean, I know you're a meditator and it's not a one-time thing. What it does is that it changes the way you do life. It changes your perspective. Which I think is so fundamentally um, important. And, and I remember when I had my sort of fundamental shift in perspective and it kind of was one fundamental shift, but then layers of, of, of more insight, more penetration, more deepening, more widening, more expansiveness, more, you know, um, but that fundamental shift in perspective, once that started to shift for me, then everything else opened up everything was sort of possible. And somatically, one of the things that I've noticed for myself anyway, is that there's literally sort of a a, a greater freedom in the body and a greater freedom in space in the sense that as I'm sort of, you know, carting myself around, I just don't feel, although I still have achy days or bad days or whatever you want to call it, it's more of an expansive feeling of presence that's more um, allowed to kind of just be in the world migrating through the way that a natural animal would, a bird, a deer, a whatever, um, while still very much being an embodied human. But you talked about, um, you know, I have two questions. One about spirituality and atheists and, uh, you know, where they can kind of, you know, folks who are just hardcore, I believe in science and rationality. And, you know, you said you're trained in both modalities. So, you know, clearly you have something to offer everyone. Um, but I, and I also want to ask you about folks who feel like their body isn't a safe place. 
especially when it comes to trauma. People who perhaps have sexual assault or developmental trauma or any version of trauma. So you can take those in whatever order you like. Well, I'll start at the end because I can't remember the beginning. Okay. Uh, we, many of us are raised or have lived through circumstances that makes our body feel unsafe. Uh, for someone who is feeling that unsafe in their body, a shamanic practice, Olympia, is totally counterindicated, right? Because, oh my gosh, you know, I'm not feeling safe in my body and you're going to rub flowers and eggs on, uh, not happening. But so that's when we use more therapy kind of model of helping the person. So my favorite model of psychotherapy at this point is internal family systems. Mm -hmm. I love that too. Dick Schwartz. Dick Schwartz. And because it allows us in the moment to go back to the time in which that sense of unsafe came to be. And to then be able to toggle back and forth between this moment and that moment. And to bring the part is what Dick talks a lot about that had that trauma help it come to the present so that the part, that, that memory, understand that what happened was then, that the, and usually it happens as children, and that that was then and this is now, and that there's a big adult here who can take care of that child or that young person who was left defenseless at the time. Yeah, that's and that's a difference between developmental trauma and um, shock trauma. Shock trauma. Shock trauma is easier, uh, we're not talking about veterans, right, who have shock trauma over and over and over. That's a, that's a little bit different. But the, that's not developmental trauma. That's uh, ongoing shock trauma. When you have sh shock trauma and you've had a healthy beginning, you have the resources to deal with the trauma in the moment mm -hmm. because a person who experiences a trauma has the skills. So one or two or three sessions and you're done because it, what happens in developmental trauma is we begin, we begin, we have the beliefs that 
are very old. We continue to live from the beliefs and the decisions that were made at that time. And so we're pretty defenseless. Right. We don't have any um, resources internally. And a lot of that, I think, has to do with secure attachment or not. And that's, right. you know, um, one of the things that, uh, you know, for those viewers and listeners who are not as familiar, uh, roughly half of the population is securely attached, I guess, is when they had a good enough mother, right? You know, and then the other half can have different forms of insecure attachment, which sets you up for perhaps being more prone to this kind of shock trauma that you're talking about. Um, and some people tend to be more avoidant when it comes to their personality disposition and other people tend to be more clingy and never getting enough. And, and so either one of those um, can be, like you say, uh, setting you up for greater PTSD possibilities as opposed to uh, for just sort of processing it and, and, and letting it go. One of the things that you said is... Um, about the big adult here that can take care of the child, the younger child. And this issue of reparenting and sort of coming in to be the objective witness and the objective caretaker for the little me or the part of me, to use Dick's version, um, that wasn't capable at the time but survived and has now grown into this other, larger, more capable adult. What about the people who are just really resentful and really angry and don't want to have to do the work of taking care of themselves, the small internal part, because they're just still really hung up on the fact that I didn't get what I needed. I'm never going to get what I needed. I'm still expecting it from out there. And I don't feel like I can do it on my own, nor do I feel like I should have to. Right. So that's the work. <laughs> um, it's working with those young parts. See, the part that goes, I don't want to do it. I want somebody else to do it. You know, that part. Um, it wasn't fair, and it's not fair that I have to do the work to repair what wasn't fair in the first place. It's about working with that part. And also giving that part the permission to be really angry. And giving that part the permission to not want to do it. But then coming around and realizing that by doing the work, yes, it isn't fair to honor that. And yes, there is resentment. But... You know, resentment is like drinking, uh, how does it go? It's just drinking poison. Drinking poison, the expecting it to help the person. other person, but it only poisons you. Right. And so, yeah, it's not fair. Yeah. But sometimes, and sometimes, often, acknowledging that it wasn't fair. Acknowledging that it isn't fair that as an adult you now have to do the work because you didn't get what you needed, it's not fair. Yeah. So just hearing that gives permission. Yeah, I think that's huge because I think in this society in particular, 
they we'll we'll look at certain people who kind of bounce back who we don't know what their backstory was and they're like well she could bounce back or it wasn't as big for, of a deal for her and there's a lot of research about this even about 9-11 and stuff and you know folks who survived to, i think you know that different people responded in different ways some folks you know have lingering effects and other people were able to um to move through it with a, a greater facility um so that's i think really important because i i think this cuts to the baseline of whether or not people actually want to live with more freedom and if you don't have an experience of what that even would look like or feel like it's, I think, hard to imagine that it's possible sometimes, especially mm -hmm. if you're still stuck in the mind that is part of the problem and you're not moving out of it with these different kinds of practices that you're talking about, like the shamanic practices. So what helps me a lot with that is, and this is belief, I don't know that it's true, that we all come to this planet with a lesson to learn. Just as we all come with gifts to share, we all come with lessons to learn. And for some of us, lessons are very, very difficult. And the lesson is not about healing. Hmm. Say more about that. Well, I, it's a very slippery slope. Um, I, I, there's a book by, his last name is Newton, I believe, called Life Between Lives. Okay. And he's a past life regressionist, but instead of regressing people to past life, he regressed them in be, to in between lives. And that's different than karma. And he believes that we all decide the kind of life that we're going to have for the enhancement of our soul. Mm -hmm. And I remember Hilda, who was this amazing, Hilda Charlton was a amazing spiritual teacher in the earth late 70s, early 80s. She used to teach at St. John the Divine. And she used to say that we don't know if the bum on the sidewalk is not an enlightened soul come here to teach us compassion and learn the real meaning of suffering. Yeah. I don't know. Well, I think that speaks very much to a lot of the questions that I've been having, or a lot of the conversations I've been having with people who talk about um, how does it serve? They've sort of shifted in terms of like the political climate that's happening now or whatever, like what's really the reason behind this? You know, they're sort of exasperated with like, okay, well, I'll try to do my work or I'll be activist or I'll be involved or I'll 
do some self-investigation and check my own role in this, but also like, how does it serve? And I had a conversation with someone recently who just said, you know, this is the period of disruption. It's being blown up and needs to be blown up in order for us to sort of see clearly. And another person who's uh, very well known in a sort of guru of, of sorts was also saying after the um, election of 2016, um, you know, from the ashes, the phoenix will rise, meaning that it had to kind of burn down. And that's a really tough pill, I know, for a lot of people to swallow, that they're really clinging to the idea that um, they're really, it shouldn't have happened and it shouldn't be this way. And can you speak a little bit about how what you just said, we all decide the kind of life we're going to have for the enhancement of our soul, how these kinds of things are our perspective and our projection that we kind of create our reality, if you will, in a certain way. We're, we're sort of co-creating our own, um, you know, we, we, can we have a certain role in being able to manifest at a certain level that which we experience. And at the same time, we are also the recipient of experience and events that are that are happening out there that we can work toward or with or, you know, whatever those energies are and figure out our place in it, speaking like you were earlier to purpose and authenticity and, and that kind of thing. So how do those how do those merge the personal visioning and then also where we fit into the larger collective around these issues? Oh, so I think that our job is risk uh, responsibility, which is the ability to respond. Events happen. And our job is to respond appropriately. I do believe that now, the shamans talk about the Pachakuti, which is a time, and it started around 2011, 2012, that the earth is turning itself upside down, and it happens every 500 years, I think. I can't remember. But it, and what it means is that we're entering a new perspective, a new way of looking at the world. And as you were mentioning earlier, we're having a global dark night of the soul. Mm. And the gift of this time that is, feels so dark to so many people is that it's brought up out of the caves the cancer of our culture. And, and so it's an opportunity for healing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sort of you can't heal what you can't see. Yeah, I understand. Well, it gets back to the whole idea of faith and trust uh, versus sort of fear and contraction. But it also um, goes back to this business I was speaking of earlier about sort of you know, diehard atheists and, and the other question I asked versus folks who are a little bit more willing to surrender into mystery and the unknown and sort of not having a definitive answer on everything, but sort of waiting to see what comes. And um, I think that's a hard sell for a lot of folks is the surrendering or the letting down of the guard or being too vulnerable, perhaps because they haven't built up the skills to 
also have boundaries around certain things that they can kind of toggle between self-protection and vulnerability and all that. So can you speak to how somebody might be able to enter into this kind of space of being willing to process a dark night of the soul personally or collectively, but still not going nuts? <laughs> well, I can only talk about personally, mm -hmm. not collectively. I'm, I'm not that skilled or knowledgeable about collective events and how to work with them. I, I know how to do it one-on-one -on -one kind of thing or in small groups. Uh, I think it just takes courage. It's courage to think differently. Courage to um, try something new. Um, as a friend of mine said, you know, this is not for the faint-hearted. It's one of my mom's favorite sayings. Or is it? <laughs> yep. <laughs> but change is not for the faint-hearted. Takes a lot of courage. And it takes a lot of courage to see that which we don't want to look at. Mm -hmm. But that's where the healing comes from. Is there a way to gird the... Um, trepidation that one might have. I, well, I'll speak from my personal experience. I know that part of my ability to be more fearless in my self-investigation and uh, my experience as a full embodied human was girded by the fact that a new perspective was introduced to me, which was that we all have a basic goodness, that there isn't a flaw that is deep within us, that we're condi conditioned deeply, and that our deep conditioning can often cause a lot of, you know, odd behaviors that were helpful to survival, like you said when you were talking about the parts and Dick France, uh, his work, you know, from the internal family systems earlier, that were initially helpful but no longer serve, or that serve currently but only in certain capacities, but we're sort of using a, a wide brush when we should just be using a little, you know, a little brush here and there of it. So finding that sort of comfort in there being a basic goodness, a knowledge that, you know, sort of there's an innate friendliness, an innate nobility, an innate no dignity was able to kind of serve as the gasoline for me to then get in the car and start driving down this road. Whereas I think a lot of folks who have never been introduced to that concept which in this case was a Buddhist concept, but it's probably just a universal, you know, could be Gaia principle or any other kind of concept of that um, consciousness, you know, whatever you want to call it. Um, they may not buy into that. So they're not going to necessarily perhaps have the courage because they feel like it's just them alone rowing down this, you know, rickety raft, um, you know, and they might go over the waterfall. And so what happens then when somebody's at the precipice of the waterfall and saying like, I'm hanging on for dear life, but maybe they should just let go? So I think it's important to let go, but I think it's also helpful to have a balloon to help you come down. That's where therapy and meditation and groups and things like that help. And I personally am very respectful of the parts that say, I'm not doing that. I don't want to go there. 
It's too scary. I am not jumping. I don't want a balloon. I don't want a parachute. I am not jumping. It's too far down and it's too scary and we're not doing it. So it's really about giving room and space and care and lovingness towards those parts that say, I'm not doing that. Once we are cognizant, once we embrace our fears, you know, I do this word of the week thing, mm -hmm. and um, the, the word for next week is fear. And how does our fear inform us? Fear is a big ally. The question is, where does it come from and what is it trying to tell us? Yeah. Right? There's a fear that if you see a car rushing down the street about to help hit you, move out of the way, mm -hmm. right? If you're afraid because you hear a drip drip outside your window and you don't know what it is, I would be curious about a part of you that was hurt and hurt a drip drip. Mm -hmm. So if we can be present to our fears, if we can honor them and witness them, then they don't take over. Right. I think that a lot of what we call our negative emotions and in our culture, we just want to make them go away. You know, get over it, kind of. Doesn't work. But once we embrace them and get to know them and befriend them and understand them, we don't need them anymore. Yeah, so it's, it's really so interesting because the idea of what we resist persists. So the more we're afraid of our fear, the more our fear will be the one that bites us in the ass and, you know, the tail wagging the dog as opposed to us, you know, doing the direction um, and having agency in our lives and being able to do that responsiveness versus that reactivity um, that uh, can get us into trouble and, and, and be self-harming and harming of others. I think that's really key because the more we are allowing and creating the space for the totality and not judging, right? We're not judging. Like fear is but bad. That's big. That's huge. The not judging. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. No, but you're talking about it. I mean, speak more about that because I think that the, the, the fact is, is certain people feel like I should feel ashamed or I should feel afraid or I should feel guilt. Like there's a part that's so identified with the, suffering as opposed to just seeing it as like yeah that's natural it comes up from time to time and then you know the next day i'm over on vacation and i'm feeling joyful and happy and then the next day something else is happening where i'm kind of not really that just sort of here not really having any major emotion but that it's all part of everything as opposed to always just wanting that euphoric experience which isn't realistic day to day right. we wish right <laughs> Uh, I think that the more we can welcome our emotions, whatever they are, and befriend them and ask what they're trying to tell us, 
the better off we are. We don't, you know, then they, they, they modify, you know, they, they, they lose their steam. Yeah. Yeah. They lose, they lose a little bit of their power. They, yeah, they don't uh, control. And there is so much societal judgment around certain emotions that we become ashamed of our authentic knowing. With, and that doesn't serve anything. It just sort of sucks the energy out, but it doesn't like put it back in, right? Like I'm willing to water the plant if the plant's gonna grow, but this one, it's just like, ah, the plant kind of shrinks back. So um, let's use that to just briefly talk because we only have about 10 minutes, not even quite left um, to chat. But um, to talk about this sort of phenomenon that's happening now around gender issues, around patriarchy and around misogyny, around, um, you know, toxic masculinity, whatever you want to call it, as a sexual harassment, me too, times up debates and, and, and conversations. How does what we're talking about today, this idea of getting comfortable with allowing the full range of human experience and full range of human emotion without judgment, how does that help inform what's happening in the news with these movements with men and women? What can we learn from what you're saying about the therapeutic and how, how, how does it apply? When men are at the water cooler saying, I don't really know what to do with the female colleagues in my office anymore. When women are at home saying, oh, I didn't like how this guy touched me or what he did or what he said or how he is, but I'm not really sure what to do about it. How can we use some of these practices and this perspective to inform our daily life around these kinds of issues? I think it's, again, one of those very slippery slopes. Uh, the Me Too movement is way overdue. I mean, I grew up, I came of age, you know, in the late 60s. And it was women's lip time. And we went a little bit too far out. But, you, need, you know, it's this pendulum thing. So I think that the Me Too movement is way overdue. And I think, and I know this is totally not PC, but I think it's gone a little too far. But it will rectify. And so we're trying to maneuver new ways of being with gender issues. You know, if I say, and this just happened to a colleague of mine who said to this woman that he liked the fabric of her dress and she took it as a sexist remark, he's from another country, he's fascinated by textiles. He was just interested in the textile of her dress. But because of the Me Too movement, she took it up a notch or three, and it was sexual harassment. Mm. So it's about learning, and, and it will even out. What's important about it is that it is opening up conversation. Like men are saying, well, how do I relate to this colleague? who's female, 
you know. And for women to be able to say, you know, I don't like it when you comment on the fabric of my dress without making it, you know, like this big thing. So I think we're just learning new ways of being. But like we were talking earlier about, you know, this administration and everything that's come out of it, I think that's all part of this unearthing all these cancers that we've had and giving voice to that which isn't working. Mm -hmm. And whenever we move into something new, we kind of go a little off, a little too far. This isn't bad. It will rectify. You know? What do you think people really want? What do you think all people really want? People want three things. They want to be loved. They want to be respected. And they want to be witnessed. And really... A friend of mine came up with this and she said, we all want to be cherished. And I think bottom line, that's it. Because when you're cherished, you're loved, you're accepted, you can be vulnerable, you know, it's, and I think that's all. And we want to be connected. We have a huge yearning to be connected as human beings. And with our increasing technology, in some ways, although it's technically connecting us, it really is kind of a division. So in that way, can we heal on our own or do we need other people to heal? I believe, other people believe differently. I believe that it takes a village. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I am a huge proponent of we need each other to heal. Because a lot of our trauma is about not being seen. You know, there's trauma of being hurt, which is a way of not being seen. But our biggest trauma is, you know, we all want to be seen for who we are. And we can't do that for ourselves. I think that's a beautiful um, way to end. Is there any clothing, clo not clothing, closing thoughts <laughs> that you'd like to share before we go? Because I know we got to wrap up. Yeah. I, uh, thank you for this opportunity. It was lovely speaking with you. Always lovely to speak with you too, Monique. And for folks who need to know, which you should know, um, your website, Monique Lang, L-C-S-W, it's M-O-N-I-Q-U-E-L-A-N-G-L-C-S-W.com. And on there, Monique has um, the listing of her books, including uh, Healing from Post-Traumatic Stress, if you can see that as well as um, the other books, Ceremonies for Healing and Meditation for Healing, as well as the listings about where she'll be uh, at various retreat centers um, like Rapalu and Omega here in the Northeast, and also trips that she leads down to um, South America to do some of the shamanistic work. And you also do some of the breath work and shamanistic work here in um, 
in New York and also you're available for Skype and, and whatnot for personal one-on-ones with folks. So um, I just am really grateful to have this conversation because I do think that it's something that, you know, people can take it in and think outside of the box a little bit and see what they see what they want to do with it, but we'll see. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Monique. Take good care. Bye.